Now, friends, today, if you have your Bible there, it's 2 Corinthians, the 8th chapter. You will have discovered, if you're reading along with us, and I trust you are, that the subject is now changed. Paul, for the first seven chapters, talked about the comfort of God. And I trust it's been a blessing to your heart. That is, it's brought comfort to your life. That is help and strength. And to let you know you have a helper today in the Christian life. Now, the natural reaction is to say, well, Paul, tell me more. Paul changes the subject. And in chapter 8, you know what he talks about? Collection for the poor saints of Jerusalem. And he brings us back to earth with a thump, let me tell you, because this subject now has to do with Christian giving. Before it was Christian living. Now it's Christian giving. And this is as vital a part as living. In fact, it's part of that. And I probably, in this section, am going to say something that is going to be a little different, revolutionary to you. But before you push it aside, I hope you'll hold on to it. And in the first six verses here, he gives us an example of Christian giving. And then from verses 7 through 15, he gives us an exhortation to Christian giving. And then he gives the explanation of Christian giving. And that goes into the fifth verse of the ninth chapter. And then he concludes this section with an encouragement to Christian giving from verse 6 through 15 in chapter 9. So that what we have in this section is something actually quite wonderful, friends. And I want you to see this as we get into this section. Now, I never preach many messages on Christian giving. In the 21 years that I was pastor in downtown Los Angeles, I do not think that I brought over three messages, and yet we saw giving double and triple two or three times during that period. And we believe that instead of trying to promote something, and that's one reason I resent all methods that are being used today, especially on radio, where we reach the general public and a great many lost people, to attempt to promote something instead of giving out the Word of God. I think radio is where we give out the Word of God today and not attempt to promote something because a great many people that listen, we happen to know that, are really not Christians. Now, this is important, this section here, and we feel that we should bear down upon it, actually. And here in Second Corinthians 8 and 9, you have the most extended and complete section of Christian giving that we have in the Scripture. Actually, all we need to know is here. There are no rules, but there are certain clear-cut principles for giving. Now, that may strike you as being unusual. Somebody says, well, I thought we were to give a tithe. Hold that for a minute. I disagree with that, by the way. That's not the rule for today. It might be a principle for you, but it won't be a rule for anyone. Now, the word that's important in this section is the word grace. If you have read chapter 8, you've noticed that the word grace occurs in this chapter 
seven times. And in chapter 9, it occurs three times, so that for ten times in these two chapters, Paul talks about grace and the grace of giving. And it becomes, by the way, very important. Let me just lift it out one or two places here. The very first verse, Moreover, brethren, we do you to wit of the grace of God bestowed on the churches of Macedonia. Now, he calls it the grace of God, that is, of giving. And here we find in verse 4, he says, Praying us with much entreaty that we would receive the gift and take upon us the fellowship of the ministering to the saints. Now, the gift here is the grace. We would receive the grace. The gift was grace. And take upon us the fellowship of the ministering to the saints. And that's another wonderful word that Paul uses and has rich meaning for us today. Now, we are told, he's writing now to the Corinthians, he says this was a grace that the Macedonians had, and he hoped that the Corinthians would have that same grace. All right, now let me take this word grace, and let's look at it for just a moment, because it's very important here. We say today, the theologian does, that it's the unmerited favor of God. I agree with that, but it doesn't adequately describe this word. It may cause you actually to miss the rich flavor of it. Now, in classical Greek, and I studied classical Greek before I studied Koine Greek in the Bible, I found out that the Greek word charis, it meant an outward grace, like beauty, or loveliness, or charm, or kindness, or goodwill, or gratitude, or delight our pleasure, and you find that there are three graces, good and fine and noble. And the Greeks were missionary-minded, and they wanted to impart this to others. And so the Holy Spirit reached out and chose this word and gave it a new luster and a new glory. And the Christian writers adopted it. Paul uses it again and again. And the grace of God, now will you listen for just a moment? This is important. The grace of God is the passion of God to share all his goodness with others. You see, grace means God wants to bestow upon you good things, goodnesses. He wants to make you fine and noble and wants to bring you into the likeness of his Son. And therefore, it's by grace, Paul says, by grace are ye saved through faith, that not of yourselves, it's the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. You see, we were lost sinners. We had nothing to offer God for this. So he did it by grace. He had a passion to want to save us. But he couldn't arbitrarily do it. He loved us, but he couldn't arbitrarily do it. So he had to provide a way, and he sent his son to die. And now that his son died for us, we're told that God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son. God's in the business of giving, not receiving. And I think we ought to make it very clear. I think sometimes we give the impression that God's poor and needs your gift. He doesn't. God's not poor. He told his people, a cattle on a thousand hills are mine. 
silver and gold's already mine. If I needed, I was hungry. I would never tell you anyway. God said, well, he doesn't get hungry. So God is not in need of anything. Now, some of his works are, radio is, our radio ministry needs your support. But I want to be very careful today. You ought to give us a grace of God because you believe in radio, because radio's helped you, and that you have a passion for this sort of thing. Don't give reluctantly. Paul will make that clear. He says you're never to give like that, you see. But we'll come to that. Now, the early church considered giving, therefore, a grace. It was a passion, an overwhelming desire to share the things of God with others. Now, will you note here, there was a local situation, and I think we need to recognize that. In other words, the Jerusalem church had been the first to give out the gospel. Gospel began there. Ye shall be witnesses unto me, beginning in Jerusalem. And the apostles, though, they loved Jerusalem, and they locked their arms around their beloved city. And then persecution drove them from the city, scattered them abroad, sent them down highways into Judea and Samaria, and finally to the uttermost parts of the earth. Now the church in Jerusalem was weakened because of persecution. Fact of the matter is, there was a famine going on at this time, and it was poverty-stricken. And Paul went about on his third missionary journey taking an offering. And this is rather revolutionary. Here are the mission churches sending an offering to help the mother church, or the church that was the beginning. Today, we send out missionaries and we support them out on the foreign field. But the foreign field in that day supported the church, the home church. And therefore, Paul was unable to come to Corinth, and so he sends instructions to them about how to give. Because he intends to come by, as he said, he didn't want any of this promotion when he got there. And that's a little different than today. We say now, come over here and hold a meeting for us, and while you're there, we'll take up a love offering for you. That's what they tell me. But the interesting thing is, Paul says, I don't want you to take it up while I'm out. I don't want to spend time talking about money. What we want to do is to get the Word of God out. And it should be done beforehand. And if the church today was the type of church it should be, then the offering would be taken long before the evangelist or the others got there. But today we have to put emphasis on it. And it's because we've come to that place. Now, there are certain principles that were derived from this local situation. And the color of the local situation is here. And it's the background of what Paul says. But that local situation has long since been dissipated, and it's long since disappeared. But their principles abide. And I think they're as sharp and fresh today as they were when Paul gave them. Now, Paul, first of all, cites the Macedonians as an example of Christian giving. That is, the church in Philippi. And you have your motives and methods. Will you listen to them? He says here that the grace of God, that is, this matter of giving, was a grace bestowed on the churches of Macedonia. How that in a great trial of affliction, the abundance of their joy 
and their deep poverty abounded unto the riches of their liberality. Now, that is a tremendous statement. Out of poverty they gave, not out of riches that they gave. We don't know really anything about that today. Now, verse 3, "...for to their power I bear record, yea, and beyond their power they were willing of themselves." Now, that was first of all a commitment of themselves to God. Now, will you listen to this? "...praying us," verse 4, "...with much entreaty that we would receive the grace and the fellowship of the ministering to the saints." Now, that gift they had taken up was a grace. God had given them a grace to give, and what they'd given was a grace, and it was a fellowship, and that means to share the things of Christ. You and I can't dream the love that they had one for another. Now, we talk today about social action in the church, and I must confess that the fundamental church has just about lost sight of it. It's wonderful today to give to missions. But what about some folk in your congregation that are in need? And many of them don't want their need to be known because they know it would become a subject of gossip in the church. And they don't accept help because they feel like it's more or less of a disgrace. And I've discovered that myself in my own ministry. And I had to fight sometimes a committee that, wanted to know who the money was for. <laughs> May I say to you, why there are certain sensitive folk that the committee would talk, and time it got to their wives, it would be throughout the church. You see, we've lost really today this wonderful grace of giving. These people did this. They did what? And this they did, verse 5. This is unusual. Not as we hope. Paul says this is not something that we had expected, but first gave their own selves to the Lord and unto us by the will of God. Now, they gave themselves to the Lord. They gave themselves, apparently, to some local work of Christ. And they were sold on it. In fact, they were sold out to it. And you remember that in that 15th chapter of 1 Corinthians, Paul talks about the resurrection and heaven. And they're about to say, Brother Paul, oh, tell us more about heaven. And Paul, he shakes them right down to their shoestrings. He says, now concerning the collection for the saints, as I've given order to the churches of Galatia, even so do ye. Paul says, I want to talk to you about something very practical. And he tells them here that they're not to give grudgingly, you see, out of the abundance of their joy and their deep poverty. What a picture. God loves a cheerful giver. And you see how it works in shoe leather? Well, it was a fellowship. They shared what they had. Now, these churches owed Jerusalem church everything that was spiritual. Now, he says, you're to give to them of their material things. And that's what Paul means in Galatians, the sixth chapter, verse 6. That very practical section, Paul says, "...let him that is taught in the Word communicate unto him that teacheth in all good things." That means pay your preacher. That's what it means. It means, my friend, that where you get your blessing, that's what you ought to support. We have a man that the radio brought him back to the Lord, and he was far from the Lord. 
And he gave a building that belongs now to the through the Bible. He gave it hilariously. He gave it joyfully, you know. And that is something that we need to recognize today, that that's the way that we're to give. And a great trial of affliction, there was the abundance of joy. Out of deep poverty, there was the riches of their liberality. My friend, that is the way they gave. And you remember the Lord Jesus stood over and watched the people give. I think he still does that. And the rich came and they gave generous gifts. But that little poor widow came and the Lord said, She hath cast in more than they all. Now, if you want to measure it by the riches of that temple, her few little old coppers didn't amount to anything compared to the riches of that. But in God's sight, the Lord Jesus says, she's cast in more than they all. For she gave of her poverty all the living that she had. She gave everything. <laughs> and the others didn't do that. Someone who says when it comes to giving, some people stop at nothing. And I think that's where they stop. The story is told about in a Scotch church. They were tempting to raise money in a building program. And that was a rich Scot. Uh, that was a member of the church. In fact, they estimated, and it was known, that he is worth 50,000 pounds. But he was a typical Scot. He was pretty stingy, like most of us are. So a deacon came to see him and says, Brother, how much are you going to give? He said, Oh, well, I guess I'll be able to put in the widow's might. And this deacon, he called out in the meeting. He says, Brethren, we have all we need. This brother's going to give 50,000 pounds. And this man turned in amazement. He said, I didn't say I'd give 50,000 pounds. I said I'd give the widow's might. Well, this deacon said, she gave all. I thought you meant you were going to give all. You see, God notes not what you give, but what you keep for yourself. And it should be done joyfully. <laughs> it should give you great joy. In another church, they were taken up an offering for a building program. And so the man calling on one of the members says to him, how much are you going to give, brother? Well, he said, I guess I could give $10 and not feel it. And this man says, well, why don't you make it 20 and feel it? You see, the blessing only comes when you feel it, my friend. That's what it means, that it's more blessed to give than to receive. But they gave themselves. And friends, if God doesn't have you, he doesn't have anything, and he doesn't want what you give. If he doesn't have your hand, he doesn't want what's in your hand. Now, we may say that, but I'd like to make it clear, and I don't make it clear. But if you are not a Christian and you're listening to this program, frankly, I hope you'll not give until you take Christ as your Savior and receive the gift of God, which is eternal life in Christ, then I'd like to talk to you about giving. But until then, God doesn't want you to give. Since he doesn't want you to give, we don't either. We'd think it wouldn't be the proper thing to do. It's when you have come to the place, and when you've come to that place of giving yourself, then we're prepared to give. Now, he goes on to say here, verse 6, "...insomuch that we desired Titus, that as he had begun, so he would also finish in you the same grace..." Also, that's a very marvelous thing, the same grace in you. That is, 
the grace that motivated the Macedonians would motivate the Corinthians. Therefore, as ye abound in everything, in faith and utterance and knowledge, and in all diligence and in your love to us, see that ye abound in this grace also. And my friend, the real test, I think, of any person is the fact of what they give. Someone has said that there are three books that are essential for a worship service. One, the first book is the Bible. The number two is the hymn book. And the third is the pocket book. And that is something that's very important for worship. And it's not your knowledge of the Bible. It's not your ability to teach the Bible. It's what you give, friend. Is this grace in you? And don't try to force it now. It must be in you. And it's something we ought to pray. We ought to pray God to make us generous. Now, friends, we're coming here in verse 8 of chapter 8. And Paul has said here that ye abound in everything, speaking to the Corinthians. They have faith and utterance. They were able to witness, and they had knowledge, and they were diligent. And they had love for Paul and the other apostles. Now he says, see that ye abound in this grace also. Now what is it? It's the grace of giving. And he says here, I speak not by commandment, but by occasion of the forwardness of others and to prove the sincerity of your love. Now, Paul is saying here that giving today is not by law, And it's not by rote or ritual. That's my reason for believing that the tithe is not a commandment for today. Now, I know that in many fine churches in there, many fine Bible expositors today that talk about the tithe, we're to give the tithe. Obviously, that was basic back in the Old Testament. But if you examine it very carefully, you'll probably find that the people gave three tithes. And one of them, of course, was for taxes. It amounted to that. So that never was the basis, I think, on which Christians are to give here. He says, I speak not by commandment. I'm not asking you to give because it's a commandment, but by occasion of the forwardness of others and to prove the sincerity of your love. Because the Macedonians had set them an example. And then the second thing, to prove the sincerity of your love. I think that is the thing that really tests a man's faith today. It's the pocketbook, most sensitive area of a Christian, by the way. Here people say, well, I'd do something if I was able. Paul says that what you said you'd give last year, he says, I want you to do it now. I want you to perform it. I want you to Put it into words. In other words, put your money where your mouth is. And that also raises the question here about whether you should sign a pledge or not. Well, I think we're going to have occasion to refer to that. And I think that we need to recognize that you sign a pledge for everything else. And I think that people ought to be willing to make a pledge to God's work. I see nothing in the Scripture. In fact, we're going to find something for it just a little bit later. Now, he says here that ye know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, 
that you, through his poverty, might be rich. Now, if you want a standard of giving, here it is. And that standard is the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Now, he was rich, and he became poor. He came down here and took a place of poverty. Imagine leaving heaven and coming down to this earth and being born in Bethlehem, living in Nazareth, and dying on a cross outside the walls of Jerusalem and being put in the darkness of that tomb. He was rich, but he became poor for you and me. And we need to recognize that Paul is not asking money for himself. He could say, I've robbed other churches to do you service. And other churches sent their missionary money to him, but now that they're Christians, he does not want them to forget their responsibility. He never asks anything for himself. He's a true servant of Christ, but he's asking for the needs of others. See, he wants to take an offering for these poor saints in Jerusalem. Now, he says that this is expedient. Here, I give my advice, for this is expedient for you who have begun before not only to do, but also to be forward a year ago. In other words, you did make a pledge, and now make it good. I think it's pious nonsense for a person to say, Oh, I just don't believe in making pledges. I don't think a Christian should do that. Well, a Christian has to sign for his rent. You have to sign notes for your rent. And you have to sign notes when you buy an automobile. And you sign notes when you buy a refrigerator. And you sign notes when you buy a washer. And I say, friends, you can sign on the dotted line for God's work, too, by the way. Now, Paul here says, this is not a commandment, but now therefore perform the doing of it, that as there was a readiness to will, so there may be a performance also out of that which ye have. In other words, as we've said, put your money where your mouth is. Now, here is the method of giving. For if there be first a willing mind, it is accepted according to that a man hath, and not according to what he hath not. Now, we're to give. Here, Paul says, according to what a man hath, but he's to do it with a willing mind. This is something that I think is very important, that you're to give according to what you have, not what you have not. I was pastor in Cleburne, Texas. I had a man in the church. He owned a ranch, and he and I'd go fishing down on his ranch and hunting together. And he always was after me to preach on tithing. And he tithed himself. And so it was during the time of the Depression. And this place was known as a Santa Fe town. And many of those men who had made good salaries were out of work. And this man kept urging me. So one day I told him, I said, that the Scripture doesn't say that, but you're to give as you're able you're accepted according to what a man hath and not according to what he hath not. Now, I said, I think that for some people that they ought to give a tenth. That would be about right for their income. I said there are others ought not to give a tenth. They don't have anything to give, and God understands that. And that was true of some of our folk. But I said, you know, there are some folk that have plenty, and a tenth would not be near enough. Now, this man had a very prosperous business. And during the Depression, he was making money when no one else was making it. 
And he gave a tenth, and it was a generous gift, the most generous gift in the church. But my friend, it wasn't what he should have given. And I went after him on that. I said, you know, some that have more ought to give more than a tenth. Well, he apparently wasn't willing to give more than a tenth. He never asked me to preach on tithe. And after that, when he found out that it's according to what a man hath and not according what he hath not. Hasn't anything in the world to do with tithing today. Now, that was basic in the Old Testament, and I can't believe that any Christian today who has a good income should give less than a tenth. And we're living in a time of abundance, but a great many people. I know that there's some folk that write to us and say, we'd love to support your program. But I'm a member of a certain church. It's a good church. I give there, and I'm on social security, and I have very little. Well, I don't think God's asking them to give to this radio ministry at all. He understands it. But I do know this, that some that have it, God sure is tugging at them, and the chances are they've already tuned me out when I've got this far. Now listen to him. For I mean not that other men be eased and ye be burdened. Paul says, I don't think a burden ought to be put on anyone but by an equality that now at this time your abundance may be a supply for their want, that their abundance also may be a supply for your want, that there may be equality. And what he's saying is this. As God blessed you today, we're living in an affluent society. Many of you have good automobile. You have a lovely home, nice furniture. You have all the appliances that are called for and our contemporary culture, and you're living well. Now, may I say to you, God is saying to you that you ought to give today and share with the Lord's work that has need. And I think he's speaking to those folk, and many of them, of course, don't want to listen. And many would settle for the tithe, just as this friend of mine, he was willing to settle for the tithe. And he wanted me to preach on the tithe so he'd feel comfortable in his giving. But after I'd talked with him, I don't think he ever was comfortable about the tithe. And I don't think any person who could give more. As it is written, he that had gathered much had nothing over, and he that had gathered little had no lack. Now, Paul cites them back to the time that they went out and got manna. Now, suppose one morning a man goes out and the ground's covered with manna. And suppose he sends back to get two or three bushel baskets. He says, let's fill it up. He says, let's get it while we can. And so he goes out and gathers it all up and fills it. But what happens? He could only use what he ate because the next morning the rest of it was spoiled. They didn't have any refrigerators in those days. And so it was spoiled. And this poor fellow, he has two or three baskets filled with that. And I know a man down in Florida, and he's a wonderful Christian. He's retired. He's in his 40s. And he says, I made a million dollars, and that's all I could use. If I make a second million, he said, I wouldn't be able to work for anyone but the government. I'd be working for the government and pay it out in taxes. So he said, I just made the million, I've retired. And he has, and he carries on. I know a certain amount of business today but he never goes to the office. He does it by correspondence. And he has apparently a very nice income that's coming to him. But he says, now I can give my time to the Lord's work. And that's what he does. He's living in Florida. 
and living it up, friends. He's able to. I don't think there's anything wrong with that. But I want to tell you this. He's sure sharing himself and his possessions with the Lord's work today. And that's the way God wants it, friends. Now, has God blessed you? Well, he that sowed sparingly will reap sparingly. One of these days you'll find out that God will begin to deal with you as you've been dealing with him. Because I think God keeps books myself. And he's not putting you under law. Because why? If he does, then you can't give it as a grace, as a passion, a desire to give. Why, you ought to be just tickled to death. You ought to say, the folk, my, tune in, that fellow McGee's talking about the most wonderful thing in the world. He's telling us how we can be happy. Give him. My, I say to you, that sounds crazy, I know. But that's exactly what Paul is saying here. Now he says here, but thanks be to God. Now, the word thanks is the same word that we have for grace, chorus. And it's but grace be to God. <laughs> And I do not know why the translators changed it to thanks. That's a good word. That's a good translation. You couldn't improve on it, but I don't know why they'd change it, because they call it grace up here. But grace be to God, which put the same earnest care into the heart of Titus for you. Now, Paul says, I sent Titus to get this, but it was already a grace in his heart. He wanted, just like I did, to take up an offering for the poor saints in Jerusalem. For indeed he accepted the exhortation, but being more forward for his own accord, he went unto you, and we have sent with him the brother whose praise is in the gospel throughout all the churches. And not that only, but who was also chosen of the churches to travel with us with this grace. You see, he had it in his heart, which is administered by us to the glory of the same Lord and declaration of your ready mind. And this that we give ought to be for the glory of God, friends. Avoiding this, that no man should blame us in this abundance which is administered by us. Why? Well, because Paul says we're going to be honest in the use of it and in the way we handle it. Providing for honest things, not only in the sight of the Lord, but also in the sight of man. Providing for honest things. In other words, that we need to be very careful about the use of God's money. I believe that a church ought to make a financial statement to the congregation and tell them the whole story, not part of it. You see, sometimes they only give a partial report, and the report doesn't really give you the true picture. Now, that in business would be considered dishonest, but they use certain explanations today, well, we feel like if people knew how much of a reserve that we had, that they wouldn't give. Why, my friend, that ought to cause people to want to give more, because they can see that God is blessed and that he'll continue to bless. Now, I want to say very candidly here, unless you are sure where you're giving, you ought not to give to that work. I don't care what it is, including this one, by the way. You ought to have confidence in your mind and heart. You ought not to give even to a church unless you're sure the money's being used in the right way. And sometimes it's not. Sometimes it's not handled like people want it to be handled. 
Now, I set a policy in our radio at the beginning. When anybody sent in money for a certain radio station, it went to that. And that's the way we divide it today. And that's the reason that we know that certain radio stations support themselves. Others don't support themselves. It's just simply because of the fact that that's the way we divide it. We intend for it to go where people want it to go. And that is something today that people ought to be very sure about in their church. They ought to be sure about it, that anything that you give to. And friends, don't write me and not ask me about certain things, because I won't tell you. All I can say is this. If you are not sure, don't give to that. Give to what you can be sure of. You feel confident that the money is being used in the way that it should be used. And I don't care who it is. And Paul, even this great apostle, he says, providing for honest things. Not only in the sight of the Lord, but also in the sight of man. That it'll be obvious that you're using the money for what it's given for. Verse 22, And we have sent with them our brother, whom we have oftentimes proved diligent in many things, but now much more diligent upon the great confidence which I have in you. In other words, Paul says, I can trust Titus. He'll make a report. I'll make a report. And we'll report back to you after we've been to Jerusalem. Whether any do inquire of Titus, he's my partner, and he's my fellow helper concerning you, or your brethren, be inquired of. They are the messengers of the churches and the glory of Christ. Wherefore, show ye to them and before the churches the proof of your love and of our boasting on your behalf. Paul says, we want the proof of your love. If you really mean business, friends. Don't take it out in verbiage. Take it out in your giving. That's the way you express your love. I think that a great many Christians are very much like that young fellow who wrote his girl. And he said to her, he says, I would cross the widest ocean for you. I'd swim the deepest river for you. I would scale the highest mountain for you. I'd crawl across the burning sands of a desert for you. And then he concluded with a P.S. If it doesn't rain Wednesday night, I'll be over to see you. And there are a lot of Christians just like that, my beloved. May I say to you, Paul here is saying it should be a grace in your heart. Now we hit some high points as we come into chapter 9. Now, actually, here, I think in chapter 9, Paul gets right down to Christian giving. In chapter 8, it was the grace of giving. Now, here we have before us what is Christian giving. Now, he says, for his touching the ministering to the saints, it's superfluous for me to write to you. For I know the forwardness of your mind, for which I boast of you to them of Macedonia, that Achaia was ready a year ago, and your zeal hath provoked very many. Yet have I sent the brethren, lest my boasting of you should be in vain in this behalf, that, as I said, ye may be ready, lest happily, if they of Macedonia come with me and find you unprepared, we that we say not ye should be ashamed in this same confident boasting. Now, Paul says here, you made a pledge last year, you do it. Now do it. Nothing wrong about making a pledge. That's pious nonsense today when people use that as an excuse. I have many folk that write us and say, we intend to give you so much a month for radio. 
and they do. But if they didn't, I doubt whether I'd ever know anything about it, because it's none of my business. That's between you and the Lord, you see. And I think that you ought to do business with God. Say, Lord, I'm going to do this. And it's like that Captain Jack years ago, very rich man, somebody said to him, says, how in the world did you become so rich and you give so much? Well, he says, as the Lord shovels it in, I shovel it out. And God has the biggest shovel. <laughs> He's got the biggest one, friend. And that's the way he wants us to give. Now, he says here that I'd be embarrassed if I came over there having boasted of you folk and find out you hadn't given anything. And that is a real test. And I've discovered that. I get around to a great many churches. And I go to some churches that have real spiritual vigor. Oh, my. I'd love to tell you about some a wonderful church in Canton, Ohio, and Indianapolis, and down in Wichita, Kansas, and Dallas, Texas, and San Diego, and Portland, Oregon. Oh, these are great churches today that I know of in these places. I've been there. And you know what I found out? I found out they're generous in their giving. And I've been to some places where it's, it's dead. Ooh, friends, it's dead spiritually. And you want to know something else? They don't give either. <laughs> That's always a good barometer, you see, on folk. Now he says, Therefore, verse 5 of chapter 9, I thought it necessary to exhort the brethren that they would go before unto you and make up beforehand your bounty. And giving's called a bounty. Whereof ye had noticed before that the same might be ready as a matter of bounty and not as of covetousness. It'd be a generous gift, you see. That's the grace of God working in the heart. That's the way God wants us to give today. Verse 6, he says, But this I say, he which soweth sparingly shall reap also sparingly, and he which soweth bountifully shall reap also bountifully. Paul, when he was talking to the Ephesian elders, he made a very remarkable statement to them. He says, I've showed you all things how that so laboring ye ought to support the weak and to remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he said it's more blessed to give than to receive. Now, that word here, how he said, it has in it the connotation that he was accustomed to say this. In other words, this was an expression that the Lord Jesus used constantly. I have a notion that he used it so much that it's sort of like some people, they kid me about using the expression, permit me to say, or let me say, or today. I use these expressions quite a bit. And it's habit, of course. But actually, Paul means that here. Jesus was in the habit of saying that it's more blessed to give than to receive. Now, this is a very trite bromide today, and it's quoted a great deal and practiced very little. When he said it's more blessed, actually it means here to be happy. It'll make you more happy to give than to receive. And friends, that's the test. That is the real acid test for you and me today. How does it affect you when you give? And do you so sparingly you give that way? And he'll tell you in just a moment how we're to give. 
And any farmer today, suppose he says, well, now, I sowed a bushel of grain last year on this particular plot of ground, and I got an abundant harvest, but there's no use me wasting a bushel of grain this year. I'll sow half a bushel. I want to save my grain. But he that soweth sparingly, he shall reap sparingly. And he which sowed bountifully shall reap also bountifully. And I believe giving out the Word of God is a very wonderful thing. I think I've already told this little story. I met some friends, and they were real friends over at John Brown University in Salem Springs. And these folk live in Oklahoma City. And this lady, who was about my age, I guess, she was raised in a little place called Tishomingo, Oklahoma. My father was killed in a cotton gin there, and he's buried there. And it was the custom in that day when anyone died that the neighbors would all send in food. And I never shall forget the wonderful food that was sent in at that time. And she said this to me. She said, you know, I can recall as a girl that my mother cooked up a great deal of food and sent it over to your house. And I never knew that years later... I'd be listening to you, and we gave physical food, and now you supply spiritual food for us. Well, may I say to you, they didn't sow sparingly, I tell you, and I hope they're reaping abundantly because they were very generous in those days. Now, I believe that with all my heart. I think that's one of the reasons some of us are so poor today is because we're so tight-fisted when we're dealing with the Lord. Now he says here, every man according as he purposeth in his heart, so let him give. Now, what really, and down in your heart, do you think you ought to give? Well, that's what you ought to give. So let him give, like that. But notice, here's to be the test, not grudgingly. Not grudgingly. Now, that's important for us to see. We're not to give grudgingly. And what does that mean? Well, God does not want one penny from you if you'd rather keep it yourself. In other words, if you say, well, I'm an officer in the church and it's my responsibility to give, or I'm a member of that church and I feel responsible. Now, the church may say that to you. I've said it. I said, this is your church. You ought to support it. God doesn't say that. God said, If you're giving grudgingly, don't give it. God says, I don't want it. And I don't think God uses it either. Not grudgingly. And then he says something else here. Are of necessity. Well, he doesn't want anything unless you're just going to give it willingly and gladly. God wants you to give like that. Give it gladly and freely. And somebody says, well, you know... I guess I better give. Everybody else is giving, and they'd look bad if I didn't give, and so I'll give. That's of necessity. God doesn't want it. God says, don't give to him grudgingly or of necessity. Why? For God loveth the cheerful giver. You know, the happiest part of the service is that. And I've noticed in several churches I've been in that take up the offering, then they all stand and sing, praise God from whom all blessings flow. And I think that's wonderful. However, I think that they ought to sing praise God from whom all blessings flow and stand and sing it before they take the offering for two reasons. 
so they can get in the attitude of giving, in the right attitude of giving joyfully to the Lord. And then they'll be able to reach for their pocketbook when they stand up. I believe that that's important, by the way. Now, he's talking about that God loveth a cheerful giver. And if you're not a cheerful giver, God says don't give. And God is able to make all grace abound toward you, that ye always, having all sufficiency in all things, may abound to every good work. Now, no one that I've ever known has ever gone broke giving to the Lord's work. Now, there may be some like that, but I have never yet met them in my ministry. God will bless you. That's what he said. And I don't think he'll always bless you materially. A great many folk think that they can hold God to it. I don't think you can. He's promised to bless us with all spiritual blessings. Now he says here, as it is written, verse 9, He hath dispersed abroad, he hath given to the poor, his righteousness remaineth forever. In other words, God is the one that wants us to do it because he's God and he's a righteous God. And I believe that this is the great section that ought to teach the church that we ought to take care of our own. We ought to today share with those that do not have as much. And what an opportunity for you and me today to share with folk. And I think there's so many Christians that have the gift of hospitality. And by the way, that's a gift. I know several folk, they have a way of opening their home, making people feel at home. And they have a very fine way of inviting people in and having them for dinner. And they take them to church first. And they manage to get the gospel to them that way. Marvelous way of witnessing. But it's also a way of being good to folk that lack fellowship, they're lonely, and they may even be hungry. What an opportunity to minister. This is the thing that he's talking about here. Now he says, Now he that ministereth seed to the sower, both minister bread for your food, and multiply your seed sown, and increase the fruits of your righteousness. Now you see, the farmer doesn't mind going out and scattering bushel after bushel of seed, because he believes he'll get an abundant harvest. Don't be afraid to give to the Lord's work. I, not long ago, had to encourage a young man who's been recently saved. I encouraged him not to give. Now, you may think that's a strange thing, but he actually was giving too much. I told him he was not even keeping enough for his own family. And I said, you'd be worse than a heathen if you didn't take care of your family. You put them first. That ought to come first. Then I said, after that, then let your generosity be known, but don't make your family be denied of the necessities of life. In other words, I don't think God wants you to be an extremist, even in this matter at all. I think that this is a place where good old sound, common sense, and good old consecrated judgment and gumption is needed in this matter of giving. Now he goes on to say, he says here in verse 12, "...for the administration of this service..." not only supplieth the want of the saints, but is abundant also by many thanksgivings unto God. You see, it'll cause a great many people to thank God for you. And God gets the praise. Whilst by the experiment of this ministration, they glorify God for your professed subjection unto the gospel of Christ and for your liberal 
distribution unto them and unto all men. Thank God for you. How many missionaries out on the field thank God for you? (laughs) I was visiting down on the mission field in South America and Venezuela in particular, and a certain missionary there told me about a certain family that I knew back here in Los Angeles, and they said, oh, how generous they've been to me. Thank God for them. And there they were down there in Venezuela, foreign country, thanking God for the generosity of these folk. Is anybody anywhere thanking God for your generosity? Well, there ought to be. That's what Paul says. And by their prayer for you, which long after you for the exceeding grace of God in you. And friends, it has to be a grace. Don't come to me and say you have to give the tithe. We're not under law. We are today under grace. And for you out yonder, it may mean more than a tenth. And I have a notion it means more than a tenth for a great many Christians. But wait just a minute. That poor saint out yonder that hasn't been able to work and is sick today, God's not asking you to give at all because <laughs> you're in that circumstance. As you're able, he says, that's the way you're to give. Now, he caps all of this by saying, thanks be unto God for his unspeakable gift. Now, I don't care how much you give. You can't give like God's given. He's given an unspeakable gift. No man could come up to the way God's given to us and given his son to die. Think of that for just a moment. Back again to where we began. Though he was rich, he left heaven, left all of the glories of heaven, came down as a missionary to this world, not just to give his life, but to die for you, to die on a cross, to be brutally butchered in order that you and I might have eternal life. And he made his soul a sacrifice for sin for you and me. And we're told it's for the joy that was set before him. Oh, my friend, he's a wonderful, glorious Savior. Don't bring him down to the low level. He's not a superstar. He is the bright and morning star. He is the Son of God who has redeemed us, and he's God's unspeakable gift to you and me today. Now, that is the norm of giving, by the way. And that actually not only is the norm, but that is the very apex of giving No one could go beyond that. Now, we come to chapter 10, and we're going to change the subject again. We come now to the last division of 2 Corinthians. First, in the first seven chapters, it was the comfort of God. Then in chapters 8 and 9, it was collection for the poor saints of Jerusalem. Now we have the calling of the apostle Paul. And you will find him in this section, friends, opening up his great heart of love, his heart as a missionary, and his heart as a human being. You're going to meet a man here now that probably you haven't met him like this before unless you've been through this section here. Because he's come now to this section in which he's going to defend his apostleship. We have in chapter 10, the authentication of Paul's apostleship. In chapter 11, the vindication of Paul's apostleship. 
chapter 12, the revelation of Paul's apostleship. And in chapter 13, the first ten verses, the execution of Paul's apostleship. And then chapter 13, 11 through 14, the conclusion of Paul's apostleship. Now, this is a great section that we're coming to, and I know of nothing that compares to it anywhere in the Word of God, because what you have here is this great apostle opening his heart, his great heart of love, and his heart as he opens it in no other place in the Word of God. And we have, first of all, in chapter 10, the authentication of Paul's apostleship. Now, this is a great section that we are coming to here. Will you listen to him? He says here in chapter 10, Now I, Paul, myself beseech you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ, who in presence am base among you, but being absent, am bold toward you. Now, Paul speaks of the meekness and the gentleness of Christ. You see, the Lord Jesus, when he was here on this earth, he was a carpenter. And he handled a saw and a hammer. And he knew all about building. He built many things. Yonder in that carpenter shop in Nazareth, he took, I think, the lowest place on earth that he might exalt us to the high. Well, by his meekness and his gentleness, he was meek and he was gentle. And they asked the question in his day, isn't this the carpenter's son? He's a carpenter. That's all. But he was more than a carpenter, my friend. And that is the problem today. A great many people try to bring Jesus down to that low level of the carpenter's shop. Friends, he's not in the carpenter's shop today. He's the man in the glory, God's right hand. And you can't bring him down to that low level. All, as we've seen in Second Corinthians, or maybe I'm going to say we're going to see it. We've known him after the flesh. We know him no longer after the flesh. He's the glorified Christ. Now he begins by saying, by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. And the problem had been this. You see, Paul came to Corinth. And he wasn't chargeable to anybody, and he didn't want to be. So he went yonder in that bazaar and that day, and he made tents. And as he did, there were those sweat cloths, those were the handkerchiefs they took from him, you remember. And he used those sweat cloths. He would perspire, his hands would get dirty, and he was working there, and he was talking with the multitude. And these Corinthians, they said, my, he's not an apostle. He's a tent maker. He's not some great individual. He's just an ordinary man. Well, friends, he was an ordinary man, but he happened to also be an apostle. And I think today it's tragic. I'm going to step on some toes now, but I don't think that you have to wear a robe or button your collar in the back to prove that you're a minister of the Lord Jesus Christ. I think that you can prove it by your life, and whether you can teach the Word of God, my friend. I think that's the proof. Now, Paul the Apostle, if you look at him, he just looked like any other man. In fact, he probably was beneath a great many because he worked with his hands. And he could say, well, I beseech you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. I'm like my Lord when he was here on earth. 
And when I'm present with you, I'm base among you. Now, they're saying in Corinth, well, when Paul is here, he just made tents. He wasn't any somebody. Now, look the way he's writing to us. He's writing to us boldly and charging us. My, who does he think he is after all? And that's the way some people feel about a man that teaches the Word of God. They want to bring him down. Today, the devil has a method that is very subtle. Right now, the devil does not attack the Word of God as such. Right now, there's an interest in the Word of God. And you know what the devil does today? He attacks the man of God who's preaching the Word of God. That's the way he gets in. He tries to discredit the man. And that's what he did with Paul. He tried to discredit Paul, you see. And they try to do that today. Now, I know of a church where the man, he taught the Word of God. And I want to tell you, there was some that didn't like it at all. And when he left, they attempted to crucify the man. They'd tell you, I'm sure today, they, oh, they believe the Word of God. All of them carry a big Bible around under their arm. They really don't believe it. In fact, they don't know what's in it. They never did, apparently, study, but they sure are after the man that does it. Now, any man that will not cotton to this little group today and play up to them, he's in for trouble if he gives out the Word of God. And that's the devil's method. Now, Paul says to them, but I beseech you that I may not be bold when I'm present with that confidence wherewith I think to be bold against some which think of us as if we walked according to the flesh. He says, now, because I made tents, got my hands dirty, and I sweated. I could say perspired, but I think Paul sweated when he made those tents. And he could say, well, when I did that, you thought at that time that we were walking according to the flesh, but we were not. He says, for though we walk in the flesh, we do not war after the flesh. Now, what does he mean by that? Where he says, for though we walk in the flesh, we do not war after the flesh. Well, he means this. And actually, the word flesh here, sark, is the Greek word, can be used in three different ways. It can speak of the body, the physical body that we have, the meat that's on the bones. Or it can speak of weakness, that which is psychological. Or it can speak of that corrupt nature which you and I have, a fallen nature, and that's the spiritual side. So it can be used in a physical sense, a psychological sense, and a spiritual sense. Now, Paul used the word in all three senses, but more frequently in the sense of the old Adamic fallen nature. Paul could say in Romans 8, 8, I know that in my flesh, that is, within my body, dwelleth no good thing. That's that old Adamic nature. Now, I think he uses it in the last two senses here. That is, the weakness, the psychological. Paul says he walked in the flesh. Weakness. I do not think that Paul came to Corinth in the energy of the flesh. The warfare was a spiritual warfare. He'd said, we wrestle not against flesh and blood. And he didn't come as an ordinary man depending upon the principles of the natural, acting upon the flesh. Paul wasn't putting on in Corinth a Madison Avenue campaign. 
He didn't use the methods of advertising and organization and human effort and energy. And I don't mean to minimize these, but Paul's just saying he didn't use them. And he wasn't one of the personality boys that uses cleverness and quotes a great many Christian cliches and soars to beautiful language. He didn't come there as anti-Nero or anti-Caesar. And he didn't give a message on that Gallio is a communist. He didn't come to Corinth to clean up Corinth. He didn't come at the invitation of the fundamentalists to put on a campaign of fundamentalism. Paul says, I determined not to know anything among you but Jesus Christ and him crucified. Paul had a grand perspective of an entire battlefield. There was a heaven to gain. There was a hell to shun. And this is the way this man is moving now. Listen to him. Now he talks about the weapons. You see here... We need to recognize the warfare is spiritual, and the weapons are secret, secret weapons. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty, through God to the pulling down of strongholds. Now, they're so secret, honestly, that they're not even listed here. This verse, you know, is sort of a parenthesis. Now, are we able to identify these spiritual weapons that we need today? Well, spiritual warfare means that we have a spiritual enemy, and a spiritual enemy requires spiritual weapons. Our enemy is not of the flesh. We're told that we have some weapons, and they're mighty. That is, they're effective. Now, there are certain weapons that are negative and certain that are positive. Now, we're told here they're destructive, casting down imaginations, that is, the reasonings and the philosophy and the sophistry of the Greeks. They were great on philosophy. And every high thing. Well, I thought of this when I was at the ruins of Corinth. Up on top, there are the ruins of a crusader temple up on the Acropolis there. And in Paul's day, there was the temple of Aphrodite. The worship there was sex. And Paul says that His weapons could cast down not only imaginations, but every high thing. And that's the highest acropolis of any Greek city that's there at Corinth. And this is the man that said, I determined not to know anything among you but Jesus Christ and him crucified. Now, are you beginning to see his spiritual weapons? Let me list those that are in evidence here, the Word of God. And I mean more than just the inspiration of Scripture. Not just a creed or plenary verbal inspiration. I mean more than that. I listened to a preacher. He said he believed in verbal inspiration. He quoted poetry and some cute cliches and had some pert epigrams. And he had every form of philosophical argument, but there was no exposition. May I say to you, when I say today the Word of God, I mean to have confidence in the Word of God that it's a weapon. It's the sword of the Spirit. And Paul could come to Corinth, a citadel of Greek philosophy and religion, and he had some secret weapons. And these secret weapons, by the way, were pretty important, Paul says. They were those that he just used. That is, he used nothing but the Word of God. You remember he said to the 
Ephesians, take the Word of God, which is the sword of the Spirit, or take the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. And Paul drew his trusty sword, and he depended on the naked blade of it, and he said the gospel is the power of God unto salvation, everyone that believe it. And he said that to the Corinthians. We can have confidence in the Word of God today. It's very important. I'm a conservative. I believe in inspiration of the Word of God. I believe that you can't demythologize the Old Testament, the book of Genesis, and especially creation. I believe in hell. I believe in the Bible from the beginning to the end. And it's the sword of the Spirit, my friend. That's one of our weapons. And then the presence of the Holy Spirit. Paul recognized his human weakness and that we today are sealed by the Holy Spirit. And then there's another weapon, prayer. Now, there's very little about prayer in either Corinthian epistle. That's true. But Paul believed in prayer. And he used prayer as one of the weapons for offense in the sixth chapter of Ephesians. Not only take the Word of God, but praying in the Holy Spirit. Now, he says something here, and will you notice? Casting down imaginations and every high thing that exalteth itself against the knowledge of God and bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. Now, the warriors are successful. And when I say that, I do not mean victorious. He gets the victory, and you and I, we get saved for one thing, and then we're successful. But the glory all goes to him. You want to listen to Paul again in this? Over in 2 Corinthians 2.14, he says, Now thanks be to God who always causeth us to triumph, how in Christ maketh manifest the savor of his knowledge by us in every place. Now, we won't win everybody, <laughs> but my friend, we can give the word of God out today. Thank God for the open door of radio. Thank God for the open door of witnessing. Thank God for the missionaries. My Christian friend, aren't you rejoicing that the Word of God is getting out today? We're not victorious, but we sure can be successful, and that's what he means. Now, let me move rather hurriedly through this section. He says, "...and having inner readiness to revenge all disobedience when your obedience is fulfilled, do ye look on things after the outward appearance? If any man trusts to himself that he is Christ." Let him of himself think this again, that as he is Christ, even so are we Christ. He said, now we belong to Christ as much as anyone. And he's talking now to the opposition. He says, for though I should boast somewhat more of our authority, which the Lord hath given us for edification, and not for your destruction, I should not be ashamed. Now, Paul says, I have the authority of an apostle. Now, it's not to try to destroy you. But actually, it is for your edification. That is building you up. Paul says, I'm an apostle in order that I might build you up. How important it is for us to see this even today. And now he says, verse 8, For though I should boast somewhat more of our authority, which the Lord hath given us for edification and not for your destruction, I should not be ashamed that I may not seem as if I would terrify you by letters. Paul says, I don't mean 
to be bold and terrify you in my letters and then to be meek when I'm among you. Notice verse 10, "...for his letters say they are weighty and powerful, but his bodily presence is weak and his speech contemptible." And I believe that Paul was not what you would call an attractive man. That's the thing we need to recognize, that when anyone heard Paul... It was like when men saw Samson, when the Spirit of God came upon him. They knew he didn't do what he did by physical strength. And people knew that when Paul preached, it wasn't by his eloquence, or it wasn't by his magnetism, and it wasn't by his ability, although I'm confident he had tremendous ability. But when you heard Paul the apostle, he was such a weak-looking vessel, they said, it's by the Spirit of God. And that's the only way you can explain it. Now he goes on here. I'll have to drop back to verse 12. For we dare not make ourselves of the number or compare ourselves with some that commend themselves, but they measure themselves by themselves and comparing themselves among themselves are not wise. And here he injects just a little note of humor. A great many folk compare themselves by themselves. And I think that is the reason today that many churches feel that they've arrived. And a great many Christians feel that they are really fine, outstanding spiritual Christians because they compare themselves by other Christians. Well, my friend, that's not the yardstick that we're to use today. And that is the tragedy of the hour. We can be in a cold church and get cold ourselves and not be conscious of it and be around cold Christians. We need to be around Christians that challenge us. There are too many today satisfied with a little click in some group or church, and they're just about as honorary as the others and makes them feel all right because they're all in the same boat. And now will you notice verse 13, "...but we'll not boast of things without our measure, but according to the measure of the rule which God hath distributed to us a measure to reach even unto you." Now, Paul has a point here that we don't want to miss. They were saying over there in Corinth, they were saying, well, Brother Paul won't come to see us. He won't come and spend time with us. And how many Christians today criticize their preacher because he doesn't spend more time with them, visiting them? My friend, every moment he spends with you, petting you and pampering you, he's wasting the Lord's time. He should be spending it for something else. Now, they were saying about Paul, oh, he won't come over to see us. And my, how critical they were. Now, Paul says, for we stretch not ourselves beyond our measure, as though we reach not unto you. For we are come as far as you also in preaching the gospel of Christ. Paul says, you must remember, I came to you first. I was the first one to bring the gospel to you. And I was a long ways from home. Now, listen to him. Not boasting of things without our measure, that is, other men's laborers, but having hope when your faith is increased that we shall be enlarged by you according to our rule abundantly. Now, Paul says, my method is not to come and be pastor of a church. I'm a missionary. When I begin a work, I go on. I'm moving out to the frontier. I never build on another man's foundation. And he says here, to preach the gospel in regions beyond you, and not to boast in another man's line of things 
made ready to our hand. But he that glorieth, let him glory in the Lord. For not he that commendeth himself is approved, but whom the Lord commanded. Now, Paul says, I'm doing what God has called me to do. And it might be well for you, Christian layman, before you criticize your preacher, to find out what his calling is. Now, you may have a man that's gifted in calling. Or you may have a man that is gifted in the pulpit. Well, you better let him have time to prepare his message. And if he's spending all of his time running around with you, he's not spending time in the study, which he should. And if you have a man that may not be a brilliant preacher, but he may be a tremendous organizer. That may be his gift. You find out what his gift is. See if he's exercising his gift. Don't sit in judgment on him.